Thanks for joining us. You're listening to a recording of the panel discussion held at the IMA on the art in an age of gas destruction. I'd first like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the country, the Turrbal and Yagara people, um, and pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. This panel discussion takes off from the work of infractions, specifically its use of the moving image to address the colonial infrastructure and cultural dimension of fossil gas expansion. The conversation looks to discuss the relationship between the situation of gas-fired futures, matters of cultural responsibility, survival and refusal. Join Q. Kenny, Philip Mari Windsor, Vernon R. Key and Infractions Director Rachel O'Reilly to discuss the work of Doing Things Otherwise, hosted by myself, Warrable Weatherall. To introduce our guest tonight, we have Q. Kenny uh, of Western Aranda, is a community support worker, artist and activist from Antharia, uh, Hermansburg, west of Alice Springs in the Northern Territory. Also studying law at Deakin University, Melbourne. She has been involved in grassroots campaigns against Northern Territory Emergency Response, the intervention since 2007, and against Northern Territory gas fracking with the Protect the Country Alliance. She has contributed to numerous fictional and environmental films and community projects and accompanied infractions to the Berlin and London launch. Her work has been profiled in Rolling Stone magazine and The Guardian. Philip Murray Windsor is a Ngarrabul and Wurayarai Murray, a member of Warriors of the Aboriginal Resistance and former organising manager for Seed Indigenous Youth Climate Network. They are currently involved in activism around deaths in custody and refugee detention. In June, they organised a crowdfunder to buy back 20 acres of stolen land near the defunct Kingsgate mine at Red Range on Nurrabul country, rich in biodiversity and cultural heritage. Vernon Aki is a member of the Kuku Yalanji, Wanyi, Yirinji and Kuku Yumitha peoples. His internationally renowned practice addresses ongoing colonial injustice and ancestral relations through conceptual text-based works and installations. His work, Tall Man, 2010, used handheld camera footage of a community gathering on Palm Island following the release of the results of a coronial inquiry into Cameron Dumaji's death. Rachel O'Reilly is an artist, writer, curator, and PhD researcher at Goldsmith Centre for Research Architecture. She is the director of Infractions, now showing at the IMA. The final work of the ongoing project, The Gas Imaginaries, 2013 to 2020. Recent curatorial collaborations include Ex Embassy Berlin, Planetary Records Performing Justice Between Art and Law, Contour Biennale, and Feminist Takes on Black Wave Film for Sternberg Press. She writes with Jelena Vesic on non-aligned movement legacies and Danny Butt on artistic autonomy. She teaches how to do things with theory at the Dutch Art Institute. So yeah, I'm just going to introduce Q. Um, Q joining us from Watch the Space. Um, 
Ingo Hartwig and uh, Alice Springs, for those who don't know, and uh, has had a long day, so she's not going to be around for the discussion, but we're extremely grateful that you are beaming in, and you're just going to, um, yeah, have the first um, conversation, and then we'll keep going. So, hey everyone, thanks for having me on board here, Rachel. Um, and thanks for the introduction also. Um, yeah, so I'd just like to talk about um, a few things on the works that I've done in the previous past and just last year with Rachel. Um, just a bit of a history of um, where I come from. Hermansburg um, is, is a name that is named after German missionary town in Germany called Hermsburg and Indaria is the local um, language um, for that area from where I'm from. And um, yeah, so the, 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 the community was first founded upon um, the Germans um, where they brought Christi you know, Christianity and the way of um, the westernized, you know, the, the way of um, leaving our religion, our culture without living, leaving our um, Aboriginalism to become Christians in their, in their ways. But um, they've done a very good job out of it, um, but they didn't um, did too good at it because we still have a language and culture and our um, faith in believing who we are, where we come from. But unfortunately, on our sacred land, we have a mining company that sits on top of the mountain um, which was then owned by, or was called Santos, and now it's called Central Petroleum. So they have been doing um, a lot of drillings for, cert, um, for, for a very long time when they first um, found gas um, just not too far down in the ground. Um, the scariest part of it is that they're drilling um, where we get our water source from, from the Armadeus Basin, um, and our water's running very low at the moment. So um, Central Petroleum has found uh, more gas, um, and they just drilled one couple of um, years ago, and all the gas that they get, we don't get anything from it because um, it's all being um, gassed to Tannin Creek, and it's, then it's all over into... Queensland and who, um, to all the um, <clears throat> filthy buyers over in Queensland that wants to buy the gas and for their own. So we don't um, get to have the gas, unfortunately, um, but the royalties that we get from it is very um, less than what um, the business people in, in the business world on how much they get um, within Queensland or, and all over the world. So reality, I only get like $45 out of a billion dollar worth company. And um, we have to literally beg to have sponsors and stuff like that, but it doesn't work out that way. So it has, it has caused a lot of change on the landscape in Hermansburg and um, where everything's gone dry. Our river, which is called the Fink River, one of the oldest um, rivers in the world, um, it used to have water flowing year out, year in. And um, now everything's just dried up. Everything's just the, the, the nature, the 
the landscape has dramatically changed and we know what the cause of it is, you know, climate change and, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot of things that we, we're wanting to protect and what our old people taught us in the past to, um, to protect for the future. And, um, yeah, so one, one thing I heard was, was kind of a not, not, a, not a joke, but I don't know how it, it, it sounded like a joke at first, but where, where, I, um, where a, um, a politician was asked, like, um, do you believe in climate change? And, and his answer was back, you know, it's not like, you know, we have to believe in Santa Claus, you know. Um, climate change is something that everybody needs to work on by doing something within their own backyard um, to bring change in, you know, looking at other ways of doing things that does not affect our, um, our, our land. Um, so I've started joining um, arms with Lauren Mellor. And um, she approached me and, and I just thought, well, you know, he's, here is help. He's the, you know, there's a lot of people out there that um, not, not a greenie, but just wants to, you know, you don't have to be a greenie to protect country, you know. Um, our people have always been protecting land for 60 plus thousands of years. So, you know, while you had, um, non-Indigenous people living in the caves, banging their head, trying to figure out how to light a fire. Our people ruled, ruled the country, ruled, had their own tribes, nations, and was protecting the lands. And it is now our responsibility to live in both worlds, to live a cultural way and to live in the mainstream way by learning both, both cultures, both the non-Indigenous ways and our, our way in protecting the land. So I then went um, with Lauren, did a trip up to Darwin and some of the um, remote communities. Um, I've forgotten their names, but wonderful people. Um, we're all going through the same problem. We all had the same anger and heartbreak and that, you know, we're just being ripped off by the government and the gas company just using us like rags and just trying to get rid of us, basically. And then then met then met Ryu, Rachel, and then um, yeah, so she came out to my way and we did a film and and then going over to um, Europe was also an eye opener for me and. Um, the, 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 the trip in London, I, I did not like at all because in the um, mining companies in London, the, the big major dynasties of those mining companies was such an eyesore to see and that for being an Indigenous person to walk the streets of London was walking through bloods of Native people that was tortured and and it was just so horrible that I don't think I'd ever want to go back there again. But just to know where the wealth of the, you know, the royal families and all these other people around the world, all this money they're sitting on, it's on stolen land, um, killing our people from all over the world, Indigenous peoples. And 
for them to be living the lifestyle that they're living, it's like I always think to myself, how on earth are they sleeping at night? You know, what are they thinking? But um, it has also opened my eyes and opened my mind in travelling and um, had that experience of meeting other people and, and having that network and understanding other Indigenous peoples' cultures from around the world and understanding the situations that they've been through and how, how they, how they um, dealt with it. And we all had everything in common, but not too much in common because everybody dealt with it, dealt with, with it differently. Most family groups died from mining companies where they actually had to do something to get rid of these people, indigenous people that were living on the land that they wanted to mine or to destroy, the people that actually died. Um, people are still dying today, you know, slave, slavery. It's still happening in the, you know, when you look at the third world countries, like, when you look at, you know, in Africa, you know, there's a lot of mining going on, but we don't get to see all that on media, you know. Um, so it's really hard to compare us with them because we're, we're not in, in that level with them just as yet. So we, we're still fighting. And, you know, we need to be proud of ourselves that we had people that, were, that paved the way for us and that was our elders past and present. And there are those people that are still... Um, alive today that paved the way. So I'd like to acknowledge them also for giving us this platform and the voice to speak on um, our elders' behalf and knowing that us in Central Australia, we've got people like you over in Queensland, um, over in the coast, around the, you know, around the country, that's there to support us all. And we're not all alone in on this um, yeah, so Berlin was um, one of the highlights. Um, everybody was amazing and um, the, the networking and um, continued and meeting people and knowing about them. But it's, it's, it's always hard to um, not convince to um, try and make an academic understand your level, whereas academics over there, what I experienced was very rude, and, and not only rude, but, you know, they think they know everything, but they don't, just because they got their PhDs and um, whatever you want to call it, ABCD, <laughs> but one thing that I know is that they don't know what it's like being Black and Indigenous from Australia and, and living in a remote community. And, yeah, so... The film also um, gave me the opportunity to voice our problems in the community with the mining company and given us, given, um, us the opportunity to show the world and not, show not only the world, the country, and show other um, Indigenous people in Australia that, you know, we are having same issues as well, but in different circumstances and in, and in different situations. And by filming and all that stuff, it, it really gives us that opportunity, like I said earlier, the platform to have a voice, to lead the way, to show our young ones that things can be done if you just know the right people to go to. So, yeah. 
Thank you so much. It was, I mean, it was amazing to introduce you to, um, you know, the non-Western contemporary art spaces in Berlin who, um, you know, understand exactly what you're dealing with because they're platforming a lot of um, similar issues internationally, but also, you know, the cultural politics of what you're dealing with, um, which I think probably get to with the other panelists. Um, I just wanted to, so the so just for the sake of the audience, we did a tour with the London Mining Network where we went, we walked all around um, inner city London, um, right next to Buckingham Palace and every single mining company um, that is operating all over the world, but particularly, you know, Australia, Canada, um, they're all, they live next door to the Queen basically. So you can yeah. see the kind of, um, you know, human traffic in capital in that space. Um, in a way that you know was extremely shocking, but also kind of useful for demystifying something, right? Yeah, they had um, security guards locking the doors from us immediately. Um, I remember seeing one of the, um, I think it was the BP, and then we went to the Rio Tinto. Um, it was all just all in line within the um, Buckingham Palace area, so they were all, um, you know, feeding off the breasts of Queen Elizabeth. Yeah. And um, yeah. And we, oh, the weirdest part was um, they changed the gas bulbs in the lights with, uh, around the palace when we were there and with the British yeah. gas truck. And um, it was actually um, BG Group, which is the so British gas privatized in the 80s as a result of Thatcher's neoliberalization. Um, they developed into an offshore private company. The biggest shareholder is still Prince Andrew and um, BG Group were extremely um, key in pressuring the sale of Queensland gas um, to China as the first um, onshore approvals in Australia. So the continuing colonial geography um, you know, of that extractive process is extremely obvious and I think it was particularly ridiculous to see that before we went on stage at the ICN did your amazing presentation. I don't want to keep you too long. Do you have anything more to say to the Brisbane audience? Um, no, just basically just keep strong. Um, keep um, your voice um, loud and clear um, for everybody to hear. And, you know, just teach the younger ones, the younger generations in, you know, what, what they have in store and just to be prepared and educated on um, how to do it and how to approach um, mining companies, you know, with, with the cultural side of education and then um, mainstream education. Because, mm. you know, nowadays in, you know, now, now 2020, you have to still have the white men's education to beat their system, you know, to be, because they don't like it when you know too much of their way. Um, then they look at you as a threat, and it's good, you know. It's good because you got you got you you not on their level, but you're on the level of where your elders want you to be. Mm. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Um, I was going to go next, um, and I just am, I've written a lot on this. Um, research over the years, so I'm just going to say a bit about how I made the film and then we'll pass it on. Um, so thank you, first of all, to the IMA for giving unprecedented support for this gas conversation. It's never um, 
really happened, I don't think, in Queensland. And um, I have done talks here before where I just rung up um, the previous directors and said, can I please do a talk for an hour on the gas industry? And they said yes, and I think it's amazing that we still have spaces like that um, that support artists um, to do research. Um, and particularly the team have put up with me improvising through, um, you know, developing this conversation while the front line has just, uh, in the Beedaloo Basin, has just literally pulled out um, of the land council and is doing a lot of legal reorganisation right now. Um, so that's one reason we don't have someone from the Beedaloo front line on this panel, but we're going to catch up with the NT um, campaign on the second panel. Um, so this film came out of a commission um, from Kunstwerker in Berlin, um, at the same time as I was invited to attend Stories from the Frontline, which was a, um, a project at, at Catherine Regional Arts um, organised by the Protect Country Alliance. Lauren Meller was, is key in that um, um, project that Q mentioned. And they were explicitly trying to mobilise artists and art spaces on the side of an anti-fracking campaign um, at that event. And I mostly just kind of listened at that event. I went back to the Territory... Um, a second time before filming and then filmed on the third and fourth trips. Um, the seed film, the campaign film, Water as Life, had already been made um, at that point, which I think is really important to say. Um, I watched it over and over again to think about what I could contribute aside from what that film, the work that that film does. Um, and mostly, you know, it's a lot about the kind of corporate geography of the rollout of the industry. Um, Everyone in the film I was kind of directed to by the Protect Country Alliance. I didn't personally, you know, choose people to be um, in the film. And my main kind of um, decisions that I made was about um, connecting the Queensland and the NT story to, um, you know, kind of dissolve the, queen, the colonial border between those spaces. Um, dissolve is probably a ridiculous word. Um, and... And specifically because the industry uses borders to erase the stories of its toxicity. So every time it jumps a border, it will say that it's a whole new industry and um, nobody should worry about what happened in the previous space. Um, the second decision um, was to invite uh, Professor Irene Watson um, as a major fascinations um, critical legal theorist into the film into a kind of meta-narrative position um, since the film... I wanted... I mean, the film was going to be a globally circulating film because it was launching in Berlin and London, but also um, I didn't want to create any room for, you know, non-Indigenous theorists to think that they needed to theorise the film, essentially. Um, I did interview non-Indigenous people. I, I honestly had no idea how to make a film before I made this film. Um, I just knew I had to do something um, with the opportunity. So... There were many other interviews that didn't make it in, and I just decided that these were the people that we needed to listen to, particularly because, um, you know, uh, the Queensland story has always been a story of a corporate invasion project that only began in the you know, 90s and 2000s, which is completely ridiculous because the history of the whole country is a history of corporate invasion. Um, very practically speaking, um, I didn't want to waste frontline people's time, so most of these interviews were just shot once. Um, I wanted—I mentioned wanting to kind of tell a more global story of capital flows. 
all the footage shot in each location um, stayed in that location in case people wanted to use it for other um, campaign films. Um, the final trip, I ran the footage by everyone. Um, they picked bits, bits that they preferred to use and preferred to cut out, and then everyone signed off on the film. And I say that because lots of artists don't do that, right? It's pretty basic. Um, particularly, you know, removed from the film world, the film world has more regulations around this stuff that people um, do subscribe to. So, for example, there's a book called Pathways and Protocols, written by Terry Janku, that's about how to work with Indigenous people in film production. Visual artists definitely do not read, you know, that handbook. Um, in, I mean, and I'm speaking also from my experience of being in Europe, where, you know, there are a lot of north-south collaborations and experiments um, that don't necessarily um, keep up with the conversation of First Nations regulating film production in, in a lot of spaces in the south. Um, so, yeah, um, I yeah, I consider this film just, you know, one effort within a kind of ecology of practices that are more or less trying to contribute something um, to the situation. Uh, I think artists, including um, non-Indigenous artists, insofar as we distinguish ourselves from human rights lawyers and capitalist realists, do and must um, make claims that exceed the bounds of what is on offer as, um, real, you know, political realism a lot of the time. One of my main goals in doing the work was to get this issue discussed in cultural industry spaces as a political problem for cultural workers, um, managing the soft power of institutions precisely because that soft power has been actively mobilised by the gas industry. Um, and, you know, because we are responsible for pushing back against historical revisionism, I think, as cultural workers, um, and you know, the main operation of gas industries is to rewrite the history of, of places um, every day. Um, specifically coming from Gladstone, um, I want, and I can talk more about that, but I won't now. Um, I wanted to specifically understand the space of least resistance, not just in Gladstone, but in the non-appearance of the issue in the cultural sector in Queensland. Um, and I guess it, you know, people often ask me what is the value of continuing um, to try and push, um, you know, this conversation in art when there is, you know, so much activism. But I think, uh, you know, I think there's there's a lot of work that can still be done. Um, specifically, uh, you know, I think if if we if we want art. There's, there's a sudden demand for art to be politically operative um, on different issues. Uh, and I think some projects do specifically think about how, uh, you know, practices can think better about courts or about commodity flows or about supply chains. But because there was, there's so little knowledge of this industry, I really just wanted the actual situation to be in, in a film. Like, that's how modest the film is, I think. And I'm, you know, it's very non-representative because it's literally a very small number of people um, from a vast front line across the whole country. Um, I think that's about all I'm skipping through. Um, yeah, I think what critical art can possibly do or has been doing 
um, a bit more of with the collapse of the neoliberal consensus globally. Um, and definitely what I figured out I was doing um, with the gas project um, was to at least kind of, you know, support a kind of divestment imagination around dominant modes uh, of abstraction that continue to kind of racialize landscapes, produce new forms of property, uh, particularly water, um, water privatization. It's only mentioned in a very brief moment in the film, but it's, it's going to be a huge issue um, in a way that land rights, um, you know, is the obvious one. The very concept of indigenous water markets is, is absolutely ridiculous, and that is only, you know, beginning to be um, kind of, um, yeah, dealt with. Um, since, uh, since the industry, as in the film, since the industry as an investment imagination has hovered above the, these people in the film since 2011, so almost the same duration as the Queensland situation. Um, I do, you know, I think it's possible to kind of think with these avant-garde people on the front line, but also um, understand that, you know, the, the, the colonial imagination of North Australia is just that. It's not, it's not you, you know, it's not, it's not a unique situation, even though it's particularly shitty. Um, and we need to kind of connect it back up to frontline people across the country who are all dealing with different forms of inter infrastructural struggles like this um, and speak to the specificity of what's happening much closer to home. So a variety of tactics is needed and the question is how do we support literacy and knowledge and counter-investment without necessarily assuming as non-Indigenous people that we are in any way close to um, having great ideas. Um, because artists, I think, um, artists, I think, have a kind of duty to, to follow social movements, um, but I think rarely do we have very much to innovatively say about them, and especially settler artists, I just really don't think we do. So artists, insofar as we distinguish ourselves, um, you know, from legal realism, I think we, you know, there is a responsibility to um, think, form, and matter and, um, you know, levels of, um, you know, relational um, entanglements that are, are separate from the normative um, legal realism that we're, that we're given. Um, and on that note, um, I think these two would have a lot to say about that. I just want to say, Phil um, has been really doing a lot of organising um, around town, and I saw you speak on the politics of the Australian border recently, and I just really, um, yeah, was excited about a whole bunch of things that you're up to at the moment, including your dealing with native title through the purchase of your property as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm going in there. Can everyone hear me all right? Sweet. It's really hard to know what you can hear because, like, the sound is very different back here to there, I imagine. Yadamari, Arabo Wirirai, Balanganinda, Manobangi, Ngurumba, Turubo Yagra. So, my name is Philip Murray. I'm a Arabo and Wirirai Murray from New England in northern New South Wales. Um, and just want to acknowledge that today we meet on Yagra and Turubo country. Their sovereignty has never been ceded. Um, give a little bit of a background on some of the things that I've been up to. So um, 
A lot of the stories that are in this film were, I uh, point at the screen like we just watched the film, but we didn't. Um, a lot of the stories in this film are quite, quite familiar to me uh, through like connections with uh, Mob Across Queensland and the NT involved in the fights that are talked about there, and also through our own struggle uh, on Gomorrah country against Santos um, and their plans for coal seam gas in the Pilliga Forest. So I've been involved in uh, resistance against coal and coal seam gas for the last probably seven or so years um, in different extents, uh, different capacities. Um, and for the last couple of years I've been working on a campaign uh, was working on a campaign to, um, with Seed Indigenous Youth Climate Network to stop Origin Energy from fracking um, in the Northern Territory. And so, um, yeah, I've become quite familiar. I've met people like Q and um, Gadrian and others who feature in this film um, along the course, of, the course of doing that and learnt a lot about the, the industry and its, um, its inner workings and the, I guess the lies and uh, deception that they put over people. Um, we rerun, oh, the other thing I've been involved in has been mentioned a couple of times, so um, yeah, recently with the help of uh, 387 people um, who kindly donated money, um, bought back 20 acres of my country that was an old mine site. They plan to um, establish as a base for uh, recovery and resistance and revitalization um, down in our country there in um, Ngarrabal country. Um, yeah, plan to turn into a place where people can come to recover their spirits, where we can work on revitalising language and culture, and as a base where we can train people in the skills, um, the skills for direct action and resistance against this system. We rewind the story of gas in Queensland, particularly um, because Queensland has, you know, the biggest fracking industry uh, in Australia. Um, and if we rewind that story back to where it began at the end of the um, the 2000s, you know, leading up to the this started the last decade. Um, Australia was going through a massive financial crisis and gas was positioned as this, this miracle that would help Australia out of, the, out of a global, global financial crisis. Um, Queensland was you know, seen as being this gas-rich place where we could just tap in, into all the gases in Queensland, uh, easily pipe it up there and ship it off, so, offshore. And so this massive pyramid scheme of companies formed, you know, shifting capital from one place to another, never, never making profits so they never pay tax, they're always just shuffling money from one shareholder to another to, you know, from one company to another, um, shifting assets from one place to another. Um, and they rushed through a lot of the approvals about at that time in Queensland, they rushed through a lot of these things. The, one of the things that really struck me uh, watching that film was um, the Port Curtis Coral Coast uh, mob up on you know, mainly Grand Grand country up there, um, and uh, the, the old ladies who are talking and saying, um, if we could have our time again, we would never have agreed to this. You know, if, we, if we'd known the things then that we know now, we would have never, we would have never agreed to this happening. And so, Aboriginal communities in Queensland at that time were, you know, the initial sacrifice zones for Australia's recovery from the global financial crisis. And we've seen that time and time again happening in Australia where racialised communities, Aboriginal communities, uh, refugees, other people are made like the scapegoats, the people who take the brunt of um, you know, um, Australia's recovery from when they put themselves in a shit position financially. All of this is made possible by um, the fact that it's impossible for Aboriginal people to say no. Right? Not in that we can't say no, but as in legally, there is no mechanism for us to say no 
to coal and gas projects happening on our country. Um, we noticed that with the Adani project in Queensland and like the long-term grassroots campaign against that and the level of resistance that uh, Wangan and Jugalingu people have had against that project for so long. Um, and despite that, it's still, you know, it's pushed through by every court and every politician is like, well, you know, we have the authority to extinguish your native title. Um, and one of the things I, noted, I remembered from um, hearing the Port Curtis Coral Coast mob speaking was um, there was a promise. And I remember um, Blackman, I can't remember his first name. Um, um, could have been Tony. Um, he was one of the native title applicants from Port Curtis Coral Coast um, having a protest in maybe 2015 because Santos had promised 200 jobs on this project, you know, 200 jobs for Aboriginal people. Um, and they had understood that to mean that 200 people from the local Aboriginal community in Gladstone would be getting jobs, you know, directly working on this project. Um, and Santos turned around and said, well, no, this is over the life, the 50-year lifetime of this project, and these are all the people everywhere that will work, you know, Aboriginal people will get jobs. We'll fly in, fly in and fly out most of those people. And people felt like they'd been deceived at that time. And so I went to the Santos AGM in 2015, and... Um, I met David Knox, who was the CEO of Santos at the time. Um, we both kind of bailed him up in a little room afterwards and um, you know, he was making all these grand promises about, you know, this will create so many jobs for Aboriginal people and um, we, would, so we have like an $80 million package and all this kind of, kind of thing. And um, I said to him, what, what would happen if we, if we resisted you all the way like, to the High Court? You know, what if we, nobody ever signed off on anything that you were, that you were offering? Uh, would you still give the same benefits to people just because you believe it's the right thing to do. And he was like, fuck no, basically. He's like, not a chance would we, you know, he's like, we would give the court ordered minimum, basically, of what we were required to do. Um, so essentially blackmailing people, um, you know, into signing off on ag agreements with a company. I, was, you know, I said to him, you've made all these promises of jobs, but like where Q is there in Central Australia. At that time, the uh, Marini gas field there, um, had been operating for some 40 or 50 years and I, there was a, just been a story maybe three weeks before the AGM about them employing the first ever Aboriginal person um, to work on this Marini gas field in 2015. So I said that to him, I said, how are we supposed to believe a word that comes out of your mouth about this when it's been 40, you know, 40 plus years this gas field's been operating, you're just now bragging about employing the first Aboriginal person. And he said the exact same thing that the CEO of Origin said to me in the Origin AGM last year. Um, which was um, almost identical wording, which was like, don't judge us on what we've done, judge us on what we're going to do. <laughs> and I was like, I, I'm like I, that makes absolutely no sense. You know, it's like, because I said to the Origin AGM last year and I said to the CEO of, um, of Origin, um, and there's nothing like watching a capitalist sweat. You know, it's like, there's nothing like watching their bald heads, and I'm sweating a lot, so, you know, but I don't understand the pressure, but it's like, the, watching Gordon Cairns, he's like uh, chairman of Woolworths and chairman of Origin, and he's got his little bald, shiny head up there on the stage and the sweat's just dripping down his head as like 30 or 40 Aboriginal people, one after the other, bombard him with questions about what's going on, you know, in the NT. And so uh, my question was, you know, um, how many people are employed by Origin Energy? And then he said, oh, you know, 6,600. Um, and I said, and how much revenue did Origin make last year? And he's like, oh, 14, $14 billion dollars. Um, I said, do you know how many Aboriginal people are employed in Origin Energy? And he was like, oh, I couldn't tell you that off the top of my head. And I was like, oh, I can tell you. It's in your um, reconciliation action plan. It's 45. 
out of six, uh, six and a half thousand people. Uh, so that adds up to, add up, adds up to about 0.75% of the people. Now when you came to Queensland, when Origin came to Queensland in the late 2000s, promising Aboriginal people if they signed all these agreements or create so many jobs for Aboriginal people, it'll be this great economic boon, you know, it'll be this massive thing. Um, I said, where, where are they? Where are those jobs now? How are people supposed to believe that what you're offering, that the bribe that you're putting in front of people to sign off on these agreements is, um, is legit? And he was basically, you know, he said that line, you know, judge us on what we will do, not on what we've already done. Um, and I said then on the same note, $14, $14 billion revenue, and you have allocated in your reconciliation action plan $2 million out of that, which is, what's that, uh, one million is one one-thousandth of a billion, so that's one fourteenth, two fourteen-thousandths, so one seventh, one seventh-thousandth of their revenue um, they had allocated to be um, spent with Indigenous businesses, Indigenous-owned businesses. And the big promise that they're making to everybody is that, you know, fracking is going to create this great economic boon for Aboriginal people, it's going to create all these jobs, you should sign on the dotted line right now. Um, and the mechanism set up in, in court is that you have a right to negotiate but you don't have a veto right. You know, there is no right to say no to a project happening on your country under native title. Um, and what they will do is they'll take it to court and they know that time and time and time again the courts have said that the company, what the companies want to do and that development take, takes precedence over the wishes of Aboriginal people. Uh, we saw it just recently in New South Wales with the Shenhua coal mine on the Liverpool Plains. The Environment Minister came out and said I understand that this is going to cause distress and pain and suffering to Aboriginal people, but the economic benefit, you know, and basically said we're, we're okay with destroying sacred sites because of the economic benefit that will ensue from it. Um, because Australian law has never resolved the question of so Aboriginal sovereignty, um, and it's been uh, the, the right to talk about these things is, you know, put in under uh, traditional law and custom and a, a pre-colonial um, pre-colonial law that um, is, you know, is all that native title recognises. It doesn't recognise the continuing right and authority of Aboriginal people to speak for their own country. Um, we're stuck in this, like, in this spot where, you know, the options are sign on the dotted line or fight it to the death and then have it forced on you anyway, basically. And I remember going to a meeting with the um, Executive General Manager of Corporate Affairs from Origin Energy, um, Samantha Stevens. And I put, this, I put that question to her, I said, you know, um, hypothetically, let's say you do all this exploration and you spend, I think it's $129 million is their exploration budget in the Northern Territory at the moment. Let's say you spend your $129 million and you find a shitload of gas, right, and you find it in lots of places where nobody's signed any agreements with you yet, and you go around everywhere and everyone says, oh, we're not signing. Right, if every single place that you go says we're not signing an agreement, are you actually going to give up on your plans for fracking in the NT? You know, because you claim to believe in free, prior and informed consent of Aboriginal people, if you found a shitload of gas that no one was signing, would you just force them into signing? She's like, well, she said, um, we, have these, we have tripartite agreements between the companies, the native title holders and the, uh, the pastoral station leaseholders, basically. And um, I actually said, we don't, Origin don't believe that any one of those people should have a right of veto over the project, except for Origin, they can pull out whatever they like. Right, they have a right of veto, but the other two parties don't. And so I said to her, I was like, do you understand what consent means? It's like, do, like, you can't consent to something if you don't have the right to say no to it. 
Like that is not consenting. You know, so I said to her, do you believe that Aboriginal people should have the right to say no, no to gas happening in the country? And just like, I don't think that anybody should have a veto right you know, over these things happening. It should be a mutual agreement, blah, blah, blah. And I say, okay, but you say you believe in free, prior and informed consent. How does that, how do those two things line up? And just like, you know, well, basically we'll do what the law requires of us which is to negotiate with people and reach an agreement. Um, and if we can't reach an agreement, we'll take it to court until an agreement's forced, basically. Um, and so we've seen that um, over and over again. We've seen the companies lying over and over again about the benefits that they will, um, that they will offer to communities. Um, we've seen people being forced into agreements where they don't have all the information. Um, if you look at the, at they say showed me, so Samantha showed me this, huge big poster that they take around to the communities like with diagrams of what happens in fracking and a table that says like basically our wells are indestructible and nothing can ever go wrong. Um, and I remember raising this, again I raised this one in the AGM with the uh, CEO, I said the um, like origin of spilt, um, I think it adds up to uh, about 15,500 litres of oil in Queensland so far, uh, 246 million litres of chemicals um, in their like fracking operations in Queensland. Um, they, um, they've been fined, I think it was 49 times um, in Queensland for breaching their environmental, um, their environmental agreements and whatnot. Um, and they, they, their policy, they, have, they did an audit in 2015 and their audit said basically this company has a serious culture problem because you just believe that everything can be swept under the rug and money can pay off anything, essentially. Um, and so this, you know, this information's not given to communities when they go around. They don't go around and be like, oh, just before we begin, let's put it out on the table that we've been fined 47 times for breaching our environmental agreements. You know, let's put it on the table that actually only 0.75% of the people who work at Origin Energy are Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander. Uh, let's put it on the table we only have $2 million a year committed to investing in Aboriginal businesses. Like, that's not the informed consent. They're not saying these things to people, you know, voluntarily when they go around to all of these communities. Um, and what we're seeing happen right now is we're seeing that the exact same thing has happened at the end of the global financial crisis is happening again now, which is Aboriginal communities are the sacrifice zone for Australia's recovery from coronavirus. You know, so we say Australia wants a gas-fueled recovery. Well, where are the lands and where are the places and where are the communities that will bear the brunt of that gas-fired recovery? You know, and it's Aboriginal land and Aboriginal sacred sites being destroyed. It's Aboriginal communities being cut off from, from their water. Um, Queensland is like, and this is not, we talk a lot about the NT and New South Wales, but the massive expansion of fracking in Queensland, um, you know, right up to, I think it's eight kilometres from Carnarvon Gorge, um, you know, they're planning fracking in, in Western Queensland. Like, you know, you can drive two and a half hours from Brisbane and be in fracking gas fields of like a massive, on a massive scale. Um, and these companies are still making a loss, right? So they're looking for more and more and more gas to try and justify the amount of money that they spent building the infrastructure um, so they can get more money from the government to build more pipelines, to pump more gas, then they can sell off the assets as assets as stranded assets to other capitalists who can then shift them around from one company to another, write it off as a loss, never have to pay a cent of tax. Like last year, all the big gas companies in Australia didn't pay a single cent of tax. Um, so we're seeing that with Aboriginal people, we're seeing, um, you know, with the budget that's just gone, um, you know, Australia's way of recovery is massively slashing the refugee intake. 
Um, we're putting harsh restrictions on migrants uh, to come to Australia. Um, um, we're cutting the amount of funding to Aboriginal organisations and Aboriginal services. Um, you know, basically, um, every time that Australia finds itself in a hole, it's the non-settlers who are the ones that need to dig Australia out of it. Um, and we'll see it happen again in the Pilliga. They've just signed off on the Pilliga coal seam gas um, project to go ahead. 800 gas wells they're talking about uh, for now. You know, these things never finish where they start. Like in Queensland, they started out with, you know, talking about 900 and now we're into, like, uh, origin alone is, like, up over 2,000 wells in Queensland and have another 600 plans they haven't even got to yet. Uh, this 800 they talk about in the Pilliga, it's like, you know, that's scratching the the surface of what they will really do. They have permits that extend right up to places, uh, sacred sites like Booba Lagoon, massacre sites like Waterloo Creek and Mile Creek. Um, um, you know, they have plans for pipeline that goes right down through New South Wales to connect up to the, the pipeline heading over to Sydney. Um, you know, basically their plan is to turn, I don't know if anyone's been to the Pilliga Forest and seen what it's like, but um, their plan is to turn that into a massive industrial gas field, just as they've done in southwest Queensland. Um, and, you know, they're, they're literally Santos um, making a, a final investment decision away from that going ahead. Um, and I plan to be there on the front line, put my, my body on the line, getting arrested, getting locked up, um, you know, to be stopping that. And I would hope that lots of the other people who are opposed to this and can see, like, how fucked it is that once again our country and our people are ones who are Made to, made to suffer and like made to sacrifice for white Australia's economic prosperity would be willing to come and put their bodies on the line too. Okay, what was that line again? Um, don't judge us. Don't judge us what we've done, judge us what we will do. Yeah, uh, they, they should apply that to art. <laughs> that would you know, it, it could put a positive spin on, on Australian art because there's so much bad art. Um, or not you people. But, uh, you know, I, with, be, be, so we're here to talk about activism and, um, and, and art. I have to kind of qualify my being here because I, I've... I've I've produced um, a handful of uh, deliberately political works that I would describe as kind of, you know, within the activist vein. But I don't think I'm a, I'm a political artist uh, or, or an activist per se. It's just that my life as, a, as an Aborigine in this country is oppositional to the, to the status quo, the national narrative or anything, or it, it doesn't correlate to what this country likes to think of itself as. So, so that that because of that, um, that that oppositional kind of position or nature, um, I'm construed as as political, and it, it doesn't bother me that 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 I that I am uh, defined that way or described that way. Um, it, it's it's just not accurate, but. All, um, everything that is oppositional is described that way, you know, uh, and unless you conform. 
you know. So, so that's that's um, what kind of a very short summing up of of the kind of position that I'm in. Um, but I, I I really just wanted to um, make a couple of comments about um, the the. The, the kind of fracking industry, and it's it's the mining industry in general, I think. Um, but but besides the fact, setting aside the the fact that fracking is just so bad, um, when when this 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 word started popping up in you know the the popular consciousness of this country, <clears throat> and for, from what I understand, it's been happening like in North America for much longer and created so much damage. But when this word started popping up here, you know, I would have been the same as everybody else, thinking, what, what does that mean? What, what, what's it do? And then people started saying that, oh, it's actually really bad. It's worse than any other kind of mining. And, you know, as a black fellow, I sit back and like think, that can't be. Sure, surely it's not. And then, then you, you find out little things about it that, that just pop up in social media. Because when you live in the city, it doesn't affect you, right? Mostly, if your life is the life of somebody who's not Aboriginal, it really doesn't affect you. Because the shit only hit the fan in this country when white people's land started being affected by it. Well, when I say white people's lands, I mean occupiers of Aboriginal lands that are just set aside for pastoral kind of leases and stuff like that. After these companies just run through um, Aboriginal territories with, with, with little or no opposition, um, they, 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 then, then their only recourse, as, as we've just heard, is to start fracking into um, other, other pastoral lands that are, that are where settlers um, have, have been for sometimes um, two or three generations. And, uh, and, and, then, and when they're own lands, so you'll have these companies, they turn up and they just knock on the doors of these poor farmers, you know, um, who probably got their land for free in grandfather leases and um, they, they knock on the door and say, we have, uh, we're going to be, um, uh, you know, having a look around on your land and there's nothing you can do about it. Which was said to blackfellas, but nobody said anything. But when they say it to whitefellas, the whitefellas are like, I can't believe this is happening to me. And then they'll say, well, you can't do this. This is my land. And um, which blackfellas have said, but nobody said anything about it. But when this happens to whitefellas, it becomes like a tragedy. And not just a, a tragedy, but a tragedy of catastrophic proportions. Now, what we're seeing now is that scene like a movie playing out. Now, nobody said anything when it was happening to blackfellas. People still don't say anything when it happens to blackfellas. But when you start to infringe on whitefellas' sensibilities, 
um, the, the shit hits the fan. And you end up with these massive protests in, in the cities and, and that. And, uh, and mind you, when the, the protests move to the cities, they also don't include blackfellas. It becomes these white protests, and the protests become as white as possible. Because that's the only way that you're going to have some sort of substantial impact in terms of media. And that's, that's what you're going for in, in, the, in the end. And, uh, and, and this, this happens all the time. You know, and it's not just the mining companies, but every other industry in this country will, will impinge and experiment on Aboriginal communities just to see if anyone's going to say anything about it. And when they kind of move into a kind of brutal kind of treatment of these communities and people, they want to see if it causes any outrage. Because if it doesn't cause any outrage in those Aboriginal communities, then that is the implicit permission to move into other areas. Because these companies can all just say, well, you know, we've been mining this area for four decades. You know, why is it a big surprise now when it never has been before? You know, so that's, that's the one, that's a really, that's a prime kind of comment I wanted to make about uh, this Rachel's project. It's, it's, it was glaringly obvious to me because we've seen that with native title and, and other forms of mining and, and pastoral leases, um, particularly in Queensland. Um, the, the other thing is that, um, and you, you, would, you would know, that uh, when you protest, as black people, you can't do any crazy stuff. You know why? Because it makes you look crazy. When whitefellas protest and they do all the crazy stuff, like all the publicity stunts and that, they just look desperate. You know, they get charged and, uh, you know, and then the media says, oh, you know, we saw you there dressed as a rabbit, you know, and um, carrying a basket full of rocks and, um, you know, we just feel really sorry for your plight. Blackfellas do that and they'll be like, leave him, he, he's not right, sit him in a corner. And that, that's very obvious to me as well. You know, it's okay for blackfellas to, to have these kind of passive demonstrations but if it, if it becomes kind of active or uh, or you know kind of going for publicity any kind of stunts and that physical stunts then uh, we, we, we get rele re relegated to like the loony bin whereas um, you know white, white fellas it, it gains them sympathy yeah you know and, and I, I just think I, I watch these sort of things happening and I just think you know, it can't just be me who sees this. You know, I, 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 I'm not taking crazy pills here. Yeah. So yeah, that's that's the main main comment I, I I wanted to make. And you know, and it's it's that idea of um, you know desperation versus you know um, publicity and uh, and and craziness. But my, mind you, if the the fact that the the, the fracking has has become a, a kind of hot hot button issue now. Um, me, it means that blackfellas absolutely have been left behind. 
It just means that it's starting to affect white lives and white sensibilities in this country. And, um, and, and people are starting to lose their minds over that. Like, you know, it, it clearly it just means that there are, there are people who are, who are asking themselves, can this really be happening? Can these white battlers in, in the bush, they, they can't possibly be living on absolutely, um, you know, ruined ground and having to walk, literally walk off their lands. Now, that happened to blackfellas in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. It's just that no one said anything, right? But white people are having to do that now. They're having to just abandon their properties because the toxicity levels in their ground make it not just unworkable, but unlivable. Yeah, but, and we're, we're talking about just absolute lack of fresh water. That's... It's... it's um, it's, it's shocking. It should be shocking. And, and, and finally, it is. Yeah. So, um, yeah. yeah. I hope we get lots of questions from you, people. <laughs> Thanks for all your contributions. Um, one of the things that I wanted to ask is, is there a, an effective process that exists in any of your experiences that actually is effective in intervening within mining processes, whether it goes from protesting on the streets, um, advocating within um, you know, a boardroom, uh, locking on at different cultural sites, um, and if not, um, is there any sort of indication of what could do that? And then a second part question as well, what are the limitations and incentives for advocacy within visual arts practice in supporting that as well? Um, on the first part of that, um, I just want to talk about one example, which is the Bentley blockade. Uh, I'm not sure who's heard of the Bentley blockade before, but... Um, it was 2013, I think, from memory. Um, Met Gasco had planned a um, you know, big gas, gas field in um, the Northern Rivers of New South Wales, and 7,000 people turned out to the Bentley blockade. Um, and so New South Wales government sent 1,000 police uh, from Sydney, basically sent an army, an army of cops to get rid of them. And so there's all these stories about these cops, you know, stopping and staying at different towns overnight, and they, um, they pulled up at the town a few hours out from the Northern Rivers uh, overnight, and it was all over the media, how it was, like, basically a 1,000 cops staying in this town and, like, picking up more as they went along, basically, to try and break this blockade. And the government come out in the morning um, before the cops were due to arrive and said they had cancelled Metgasco's licence um, and that they basically had no community licence to continue... Um, and, uh, um, yeah, because essentially the prospect of a 1,000 police coming up against 7,000 angry people in a paddock um, was, like, terrifying for the government, you know. The, 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 the public image that that would have created in, like, a, um, like in the Northern Rivers where essentially you've got nationals, um, nationals and 
conservative sort of independents battling against Greens for seats um, based largely on the issues of like water and gas and um, and climate change and like um, yeah the thought that like they would be seen you know that they would basically just lose every seat that they had in the Northern Rivers if this went ahead essentially they lose all their nationals uh, those national seats um, and so yeah on the morning that the cops were due to arrive. You know, at this blockade, without a thousand people camped, uh, seven thousand people camped out in a paddock, um, they cancelled the license. And so, I don't know if you can get seven thousand people to turn out to your blockade, you might have a chance. Just, just curious, was that cancelling indefinitely? Permanently. Perm Permanently. Right. So they cancelled the license, made gas go forward in court, and eventually ended up with a, a ban on fracking in the Northern Rivers. Full stop. Oh wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're itching for a fight, and they get it's like you go all that way. Hey, it's like you're sitting there, you're breving yourself up. You're just like, oh my god, us there, you know, underdogs, a thousand on seven thousand. Oh my god, it's going to go down. It's like you turn up on the morning, and it's like, yeah, boys, we're going home. <laughs> Damn. Yeah, not going to get the crackheads, no. Yeah. And uh, I mean that that's unusual because the cops are usually the government's weapon of choice. You know, as we as we saw in um, the Ten Embassy. No, mostly so, white people. Yeah, what the, yeah, yeah, shocking. <laughs> um, but what was that other one, Art was? Uh, what are the, um, the limitations and incentives for you? Uh, mm. How can a visual arts practice support these initiatives? Yeah, well, um, you know, it's it's not an accident that um, in a country as conservative as Australia, you don't have a lot of um, activist artists, you know, getting wealthy of their art, um, like, like like we do, like we see overseas. You know, there's lots of prominent activists in may, making art, but um, the 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 incentives aren't are few and far between. You know, they 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 they're not much, um, but. But I mean, from personal experience, I I've often said that, um, you know, and and I'm, I'm, my art is about my family and and the history and experiences that inform inform that my, that inform my life, and uh, and um, so I I so so that that's that's what where i i i mine my own history and my own personal family history uh for for my subject matter and and what and what am i meant to do like not do that you know not dis discard my own identity or or big big parts of it you know so it, it's it's, I, I don't know where the incentive is. I mean, the incentive is, you know, you gain wider acceptance and much broader appeal. But, um, you know, um, and, 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 I, and I get that. Some, some artists make that choice. Well, a lot. But uh, they, they, they make that choice. But, but for me, it's like, you know, so the opportunities to kind of, you know, head in that direction are, are not really... They don't really occur to me. They're, they're probably there, but I don't know, you know. And I've kind of been in the game long enough to kind of be comfortable with and with my my uh, status quo and my lot in life, and um, you know, just prepared to take the hits. Yeah. 
and uh, that's that's all there is to it. I mean, lo lo longevity, I, I guess, counts for for a lot as well. If you can stick it out, you know, and um, and and stick to your guns also. So. But yeah, you know, in terms of um, activism and po and political art, you know, when it's a way of life, uh, and um, and it, it's it's who you are. It, uh, any, any other way of being doesn't really occur to you. So, yeah, can only be what I am. Um, yeah, I probably, um, I think it's worth saying, like, when I told my mother I wanted to write a book about Gladstone, she thought I was insane because I just had, you know, gotten a prestigious master's degree from a European university. I was like, I'm going to make a book about Gladstone. She's just, yeah, she just didn't get it. Um, I didn't really get it, but I just knew that, like, you know, like, if, there, there was just zero journalism. So I think, you know, how does art change in the context of zero journalism? Like, that's a, you know, like, it, like, the information has to be out there. There's lots of, you know, film and essayistic and documentary practices that are very sensitive to the mediation of the political kind of full stop. Um, but I didn't, the reason... You know, I failed to write the book because not a single fact was available on how they destroyed the harbour. Um, and everything that I did know would have put me in court before I'd even put it, you know, almost written it down. Um, so there was... I couldn't even write the book that I wanted to write to, to not have an art career. <laughs> and, um, you know, like, um, I never set out trying to be an artist. I actually reacted... Um, to the, the, you know, like the speed and the scale of those approvals, which were just, um, you know, like ri ridiculously aesthetic plans that had no relationship to reality, I guess. And um, it was from um, try failing to write the book and then kind of drawing these diagrams of the forces and operations that went into, you know, how they did it or whatever. And then I kind of put those things in public. But the reason I put them in public was because I felt like I actually couldn't do anything about the situation. So, um, yeah, it came from this position of, like, ridiculous... Um, uh, yeah, like, power, passivity or something. Um, and I, you know, like, who knows if I'll make art after this. I just knew I had to do this thing. Um, and I'm definitely sick of thinking about the fracking industry. But... Um, you know, I think having an, I think you're an artist and you're, you know, you're always something else. And, and whether you want to call that a citizen, you know, or a community member or um, putting all of that into a practice is a very neoliberal thing to do, I think. Um, and I think, we, you know, like we need to be a bit more clear about what roles we play, um, you know, in art spaces versus other spaces, um, because I think you know, the, the success of neoliberalism has turned everyone into an entrepreneur, including First Nations people who don't get the choice to not be entrepreneurial, you know what I mean? Like, there's no, there's no, um, um, the very idea that you have to wage an art career on a political project is totally ridiculous on some level, yeah. Just also keeping a, um, an eye on the time, if there's anyone from the audience that wants to ask questions as well, sing out. Yeah.
thank you for your talks. I was just wondering, as probably directed to Vernon, but the others as well, is um, with their public outrage on the Rio Tinto disaster that happened recently, do you think there's a shift happening? Or when you were saying it's it, when it happens to whitefellas, it's only when it happens to whitefellas that we react. So what's your take on the Rio Tinto public reaction? Is that that's when they blew up that um, the, the cliff cave. face yeah. or something? I, I don't know, actually. Um, I, you know, I, I, I thought it was so... I thought it was so ridiculous that it was funny. I mean, I, I had a genuine laugh about it because on, on the one hand, it's, it's, it's tragic. It's, it's devastating to their local community. But on on the other hand, um, I was just thinking, of course they blew it up. Of course they did. I mean, did did we think they would give a fuck? You know, as as if a cliff face and a sacred site was going to mean anything to them. I mean, if 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 the actual people don't mean anything to mining companies. Sacred sites aren't gonna. Mm. Of, of course they blew it up. You know, and, and, but you know, in terms of the, the general public reaction, you say sacred site and people think that means something. You blow, you blow up a sacred site, um, you know, in terms of media and that, there's gonna be a, a level of outrage because you're ascribing these kinds of connotations to, to it. Yeah, so, yeah, that, that was, that was my, my thing. I, I mean, I, I genuinely had a laugh about it because, you know, people thought, I mean, people still think mining companies ha have sensitivities that aren't there. I mean, that's, that's funny as, you know? People think that, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know. I, I mean, I, I think people forget the kind of country we're living in. People, I think people willfully kind of set aside the brutality inherent in Australia's history, you know? That, that, that mining company blowing up a, a sacred site, did, did that... I can't believe that people are surprised by that. Mm. Given, given the treatment that blackfellas and minorities receive in this country, and historically, you know? I mean, uh, I, I, I just think that, yeah, I don't know, whatever kind of rose-coloured glasses people wear these days, there's a lot of them. And, um, you know, most, most, of black, most of us blackfellas, we don't get a chance to try them on, but gee whiz, you know, must be a lot of people wearing them if people were surprised at that. And, you know, and people were genuinely surprised. Yeah, that, and I, I, I still just so funny. I still do, you know. And um, 
But any artwork around that is going to be so serious. And oh, yeah, anyway. But anyway, thank you for the question. Um, I think that things like this happen every single day in Australia, um, <laughs> to like different different extents in different places. You know, um, on a, but it's on a, on a daily basis. Like Aboriginal cultural heritage is destroyed. Um, I think that I, can, I saw like two sort of things that explained why people why. I'm not even going to say a majority of people, a substantial group of people, enough people to make noise on the internet about it, um, were outraged about it. One is that real Aborigines live out there, and that is as out there as you get. It's out there from Perth, it's out there from Darwin, it's out there from just about any like settled place where people imagine you know, there being no Aboriginal people. And so like, they're like, in their mind, this is like legitimate because these are real Aborigines out in the desert, and it's like this must be real cultural heritage and like you know the real stuff that we don't want to be blowing up. Um, and then the second thing is that the New South Wales, uh, not New South Wales, Western Australian Minister for Aboriginal Affairs who signed off on it is Aboriginal. Um, and in the minds of a lot of people, it's like so easy to run in on a pile on on an Aboriginal person in a position of power in a white system who signed off on something like that. Um, it's a lot easier than a lot easier to go in on that um, and to justify white ministers and executives and everyone else who signed off on things much closer to home for, for them, who've signed off on road construction through, through sacred trees in Ballarat, or who've signed off on uh, the Sydney light rail destroying Aboriginal cultural heritage, heritage in Sydney, um, who've signed off on destruction of cultural heritage on Binjarabali, Strabrook Island, um, who've signed off on destruction of you know, cultural heritage much closer to where all the white people live. It's a lot easier in their minds to pinpoint, ah, that Aboriginal person made a decision against his own people. This is such a, like... You know, this is, this is our, our perfect case for us to show our outrage about this and like how self-righteous we are about it when, at the end of the day, this is an everyday occurrence in Australia. It's like, that's not an exaggeration. It's like every day there are, for, you know, there are forests being cut down. Every day there um, are waterways being polluted that are sacred to Aboriginal people. Every day there are graves being dug up. Every day... Um, you know, every day there are four-wheel drives driving over middens all along the, co the coast of like the mainland and Tasmania. Um, like, this is a destruction of Aboriginal cultural heritage. It's all day, every day, um, and it's just like people love the chance to be self-righteous about something, and this was their perfect thing to go for. I think it's particularly ridiculous that it was Rio Tinto because, um, I mean, in terms of symbolic politics, um, the Business Council of Australia was the fantasy of the director of Rio Tinto when it was set up and, and the Business Council of Australia was imagined as a union of corporations that would actively penetrate Aboriginal organisations in the aftermath of the Mabo decision. So, you know, like that's actually Rio Tinto's job, you know, and that has been what they've been doing the, the whole time. So, yeah, I just, um, you know, and this, you know, this is, I think this is what I'm contributing to this conversation because we leave out you know, like, white people study this history in terms of legal victories, right? In, and we still don't understand the great tragedy of the destruction of land rights, but we definitely don't understand who were the people that organised and continue to organise, you know, the, that extent of corporate power, which is um, totally mappable. There's a really good book by a woman um, called Lindy Nolan, and it's called um, Driving Disunity. Driving Disunity... The Business Council of Australia against Aboriginal community. Um, and she just goes through and, and looks at which corporations, which banks, 
um, and, and and kind of how how they did that, um, and you know it's a, it's a, just a massive um, accounting system basically that was that was a direct response to the peak of the land rights movement essentially, and Rio Tinto was. Um, leading edge um, in kind of setting up a lot of those um, opportunities. Yeah. Just to also filter into that, um, for me personally, I think that there is a small change coming, but it's only a foot out the door. It's not even going up the street yet. Um, and I feel like there's a large separation between um, sensationalizing activism um, and that in my experience um, majority of those people don't call themselves activists and then other people put that label on them they're maintaining cultural knowledges and ensuring connection to country they're protecting their farms they're doing this they're doing that um, so I think that there's a separation between and especially within social media solidarity we see these days that um, it lacks real physical experience and support. And so I feel like those things that aren't the ingredients um, for the change um, are the key things that let it down. Um, and especially having a self-determined um, indigenous terms of reference that leads that process um, because I think so much of the time we get hollow solidarity and support, but it lacks the rigor and the autonomy for Aboriginal people to determine what that actually means. Um, and so just, um, yeah, I think that's just it, yeah. Hi, yeah. Um, I'm Paul, I'm from central Queensland, from a town called Maurer. So that's the birthplace of the coal seam gas industry in Australia and possibly globally. So the farm I grew up on had the first wells in 1994. It was a really brutal process and you know that's a couple decades before the birth of the, the Locker Gate movement so there wasn't really any acknowledgement for, for decades of the kind of strategies that were employed against um, farmers at those times. Um, so I just wanted to kind of, yeah, flag a bit of that history. It's not just that it's been, um, when it's affected European descendants, that it's um, suddenly become a big issue in the media. And I, I wondered, um, with respect to the sacred sites and, and the W&J struggle, for example, is there some kind Sorry, of... Sorry, was it a big issue in the media then? Sorry. When you're talking about when it started, so it was a big issue in the media then? No, no, it wasn't. 94, okay. it was like yeah, two yeah. decades before the, the Locker Gate oh. movement sort of really came onto the scene. And, and that was as a result of environmentalists sort of agitating. Um, but with respect to the sacred sites in WA and W&J movement, for example, um, I, it, it seems there has been a lot more interest in uh, those struggles than some comparable fights um, involving farmers in, in Queensland, for example. And I wondered if that had something to do with the fact that there is a sort of explicit framing of a, a sacred dimension to the connection to the place that there is an acknowledgement of, you know, that they're explicitly called sacred sites. The WNJ are really 
um, very openly acknowledging there's a, a, a spiritual and sacred dimension to the, the, what they're doing. And I'm just interested in that kind of idea because it's not something you see coming from farmers, for example. And does that have something to, is there like a fetishization of that amongst the um, media or is really? that a, another dimension to the situation? Yeah, I just think you're wrong. Sorry. But like the WNJ has not been the centrepiece of the Stop Adani campaign for vast majority of the environment movement. The vast majority of the environment movement has centred climate change and the impacts that climate change will have on white people, the impacts will have on every people's everyday lives, the impacts will have on young people and the next generation. The environment movement has definitely not, like WNJ has definitely not been the cornerstone piece of the movement to stop Adani. And definitely they have not received anywhere near the level of attention that, say, like the, uh, the school strike for, cli like for climate, et cetera, have gotten, the way that some of the people involved in that have become, you know, like uh, some of the young people involved have become celebrity activists, et cetera, um, out, of that, out of that. Meanwhile, you know, Uncle Adrian is bankrupt. You know, it's like I don't think you can say that that is an example of that. You know, I look at... Um, if you look at the Pilliger and the Shenmue, the Shenmue coal mine... Um, that they're wanting to build on the you know, Liverpool Plains and uh, the Pilliger Forest. Um, in both of those, the farmers have been absolutely centred in all of that, in that entire movement. Farmers. When I remember when I first drove through, the first time that I realised that anybody didn't like coal seam gas was in 2011, uh, driving through southwest Queensland out to Kunnamulla and driving along and seeing all these signs, can't eat coal, can't drink gas, save our farms, lock the gate. That was entirely, entirely about centering farmers um, and um, I found out later on that there were like vocal groups of Aboriginal people involved who was like I, it wasn't until I met those people one on one I'd never seen anything from that environment movement you go and talk to Naomi Hogan or anyone else that's been involved in that for a long time and they will tell you the same thing that the Aboriginal people were not by any stretch of the imagination when this was becoming a massive prominent issue it was all about farmers and the impacts on Aboriginal people were not being talked about at all. And it's the exact same in, um, in the Pilliga and for Shenmue Coal. Um, the, um, like I remember sitting on a panel with uh, Phil Laird in 2000 and, holy fuck, 2014, I think it was, 2014. Um, and putting this question, I, was, I said, you know, I was like, you've had the gates locked to us for however many hundred years, are you, you know, are you going to unlock the gates now that you've used, um, like you've assuaged your consciences by including Aboriginal people in your thing? The number of times that I've had the question put to me by people in the environmental movement, oh, how can we include Aboriginal people in our struggle? Right, so there's no saving, the, saving country, protecting country is a, a white thing. And I, I don't think that it's true that, um, you know, that there's, there have been, um, that, movements that are, have been centred Aboriginal people have somehow got vastly more media attention or ones that are talking about sacred sites than what farmers have gotten. Farmers have gotten more attention. Um, can you name one Aboriginal person from southwest Queensland, okay, one Aboriginal person from southwest Queensland who's been, who um, has been significantly affected by coal seam gas? And it's like... You can, you can name people like George Bender, you know what I mean? You can name George Bender and Helen Bender and these sorts of people, like everyone in the gas, anti-gas movement knows these people's names and talks about them and centres them and all these other white farmers and their experiences and they're the ones that get the media coverage, they're the ones that get the sympathy, they're the ones that get the stories. Um, you know, meanwhile, um, you know, 
the fact that homelessness in Roma, Aboriginal homelessness in Roma and Gladstone skyrocketed when coal seam gas came to southwest Queensland and central Queensland. It's like not talked about at all. Like that fact, that's not talked about. The amount that the Aboriginal suicide rate um, skyrocketed, Aboriginal incarceration rates, the rates of like severe poverty went through the roof because the cost of living became so unbearable. That's not a news story. Like the direct personal impacts of that industry on Aboriginal people's lives are not. Uh, but now that it's affecting white farmers and you know, it's white farmers committing suicide and you know, it's like, it's tragic. It absolutely is tragic that it's happening to people. But like, I don't, I don't think it's true that people cared, care more when you put the word like sacred sites in there than they care when you talk about their food bowl. You say the word food bowl in any conversation and white people's ears prick up and they're like, oh, what's that? You know, oh, it's going to affect, it's going to affect the what? The Great Artesian Basin, what's that? Oh, it waters your food. They're like, oh shit, we better do something about that. They're like, oh, we're going to destroy a couple of hundred grinding grooves in the process. And people are like, sorry, what's a grinding groove? Yeah, Thanks. I think, I mean, it's worth bearing in mind that the definition of a sacred site has changed something like 60 times in settler legalese in Western Australia. Um, and, you know, it was. Uh, even, you know, the materiality of it, it, because it's based on a property logic, it's still disconnected from all the things that are connected to that country. So, you know, the conversation about water and sacred sites, um, people have to campaign to change the definition all the time, basically, to actually protect things that they want to protect. I mean, but... Um I mean, that, that's a whole nother discussion, you know, how definitions get rewritten. Anything connected to blackfellas, any kind of word that is, is prescribed or ascribed uh, for blackfellas, if, if it reaches any kind of importance, it will get rewritten, like the word Aborigine. You know, but um, yeah, like the word protection, you know, like assimilation, you know, they, these, are, they, these words, once they cause enough damage, they just get rebranded, rebadged. Um, yeah, like land, like ownership, you know, like, like belonging. And words like sorry or sorry business, you know, I don't know what they mean. They've been changed so many times, I don't know what they mean. You know, when did we start using the word indigenous to describe ourselves? You know what, never. Whitefellas started that. Anyway. Uh, I have one other burning question that um, I was trying to think of how to actually get to the whole breadth of it within one question, but I think the most concerning thing, one of, of course, you know, survival, preservation of country, food, water, um, but how, on the same, same vein as the the conversation about the, the sacred sites over in WA. Um, 
you know, there's, there's similar sites over on our country, Yetman Caves, um, Pilliga in general, um, Boobra. So, like, what are the... In a position now in, in 2020 where there's so much main maintenance going on of cultural knowledges that still are continuing, um, but the accumulation of these mining projects that are a bit by bit um, destroying those knowledges and the connections to those knowledges. And then on the other side of the coin, there's so many people within Australian society that are celebratory of Aboriginal cultures and want to learn stuff and participate, um, but then not recognising that these are our archives that are so tremendously valued um, and important and actually teach us the, you know, epistemology, pedagogy of our cultural knowledges. Um, you know, what is the, the consequences of this stuff and how can we um, aim to preserve those knowledges? Um, one of the things that sort of comes up when a lot of Aboriginal people are walking the line to see if there's, um, you know, cultural artefacts within mining areas um, before they start. Um, when people are mining, especially open cuts, um, they, they're going to continually come across um, human remains, um, cultural materials, um, and most of the time they don't actually say that they, what they found because they, they'll get shut down or there'd be big um, investigations. And so they don't actually get handed over, if at all, until the end of the contract. And then it's, this, this becomes a um, one element in a broader network of the desecration of Aboriginal knowledges and um, continuation of that. Um, and to put that in a question, um, I don't know, but maybe, maybe it's just, um, could I get some, some remarks from each of you around that and, and, and um, what are your thoughts on it? Um. I think Australia is, we have to start with a foundational understanding Australia is a inherently white supremacist country. Australia was, you know, the, the, the justification for colonisation of Australia was Aboriginal people are less human than white people. And so that is deeply embedded in the psyche of all Australians and throughout every systemic aspect, they see it reinforced to them constantly over and over again that Aboriginal people are less valuable than they are. And I think people are on a... Um, God, I'm saying the word journey. I hate the word journey, but I'm saying it. People are on a journey to um, to try and unlearn that themselves. Right? People on this say that the only way that people are unlearning that is if they're consciously deciding to do so. If they're consciously going about being well, actually, I'm going to start from the foundational point that maybe Aboriginal people are like equally human to what I am, and therefore they have something valuable that I should be listening to and paying attention to, uh, because the system's not going to teach them that. The system is going to keep teaching them from birth all the time that their culture is superior, their people are, are superior, um, that they've won everything that, that they have. Um, and because people are on that process of, of unlearning that, when, um, then there's often not cognizant of the, um, of the value of the things that, they, that, that are around them. 
you know, and they're not cognizant of the value that is held in elders and like the knowledge that they that they hold. They're not cognizant of the values of um, like that are held in languages and like the ways that languages and the stories that are told in languages contain ecological knowledge that will help to climate-proof this country for the future. And people are not don't have that understanding of something deeply valuable for their own survival right there. And so humans will always prioritise their own survival over just about anything else. And when they have a system that tells them constantly that their own survival depends on destroying people's country, destroying culture, destroying livelihood, uh, like destroying um, heritage, when they have this that, that being reinforced to them all the time, um, it's like the, the battle is to, like, to overcome that reinforcing, basically. Um, I think that people... The vast majority of the white Australian population is like, it's so easy for us to like in a bubble of this this world of you know this whatever just the art world the inner city whatever in this bubble to imagine that everyone else in Australia thinks is the same way that there's some overwhelming tide of people moving in this direction. It's like that's just not true, you know. It's like go to the bush, go like you know what I mean, like. Go, Go to, go to places that are outside of that bubble and see that like people just don't act. Most of them are like ambivalent at best, you know, if not actively hostile. Um, and the people who are in the cities and even the ones who are well intentioned are disconnected, you know. And so they live in cities and they see cities as like the final product of colonisation, you know, and that's what they live in them in themselves. Uh, their final cities are the final product of colonisation, and they are the final beneficiaries of colonisation. Um, and so no matter how much they, people say to themselves, oh, we, um, like we value and respect Aboriginal people and we acknowledge Aboriginal sovereignty and so on, the level of disconnection that they spiritually feel themselves from that reality, from the reality of that sovereignty and what it actually means for the continuation of human life on Earth, right, the, the amount of disconnection that they have um, is, like, means that they are not prepared to actively defend that sovereignty and not prepared to actively defend um, Aboriginal knowledges and Aboriginal existence. And I think it's only through though the people who have that spark already um, uh, becoming connected, you know what I mean? And I don't mean this in like that everybody becomes Indigenous or like gets fucking um, initiated or whatever. I just mean that, you know, it's like um, take a spend the most of your life listening to Aboriginal people and like um, shutting up for a while and just like letting that soak in for a bit and you'll start to feel a much deeper connection to that knowledge and to, and to what it actually means for your own survival as, as a human, which then makes you personally invested in defending that. It means that we'll have more and more and more people who are personally invested in not just saying that they think Aboriginal heritage shouldn't be destroyed, but actually being prepared to defend Aboriginal cultural heritage and Aboriginal knowledges. Um, and like that's a slow process, you know. It's like this is not a snap of the finger thing. It's like we don't we're not going to automatically have like every woke white person suddenly, you know. Now it's, oh tomorrow they all turn up and they're like we're land defenders now. You know, it's just not going to happen. But by embracing that, that connection um, and opening themselves up to, um, um, like to knowing nothing, you know, and saying, actually, I know nothing and I'm starting from scratch and listening solely to what Aboriginal people have to say for a while, given you've listened to nothing of white people, what white people have to say for probably 99.9% .9 of your life, um, like putting a reset on that, where you can build an army of land defenders 
who are capable of getting out there and doing the work, whether that's like on the front line of things like defending against things or whether that's like, um, you know, in um, art spaces and doing the kind of like guerrilla things that this group of doctors in the 80s did the, um, to cigarette advertising. Um, you know, it's like that's how they got cigarette advertising banned. Groups of doctors went around with spray paint, cans of spray paint and... Um, graffitied on like cigarette advertising and like within a few years they got it banned and like you know groups of artists starting to see themselves as like land defenders in that kind of way and putting their that um into practice not just talk thanks uh, vernon and, and 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 rachel some closing thoughts I mean, I, I will tell a, a story, though. Um, I, I was um, on a project, my own project, and we were out at, uh, in Western Queensland. This is um, 2006 or seven, and, um, and so we were filming, and, uh, and we just had permission from a friend of the gallery to film on his farm out, out, out west because we were shooting guns and stuff. So um, I wasn't shooting guns. They frightened me too much, so I wouldn't do it. But um, <clears throat> so we were out here and we, had, and we kind of had a break and um, I met this, this fella's um, dad. And um, you walk into the house and there's all these bloody stone axes like about half a dozen of them just on the, on the wall. And I, and I, I was like, because this is what just standard whitefellas house and farm, right? And but there's all these stone axes on the wall. And I was like, oh, that's pretty cool. And he goes, yeah, yeah, we dug them all up here. And, um, but uh, they don't talk about them because his dad didn't want the people of that, that country there claiming his farm. And uh, even though under, you know, native title, you can't, especially in Queensland. So, but he was worried about that because of all the, um, you know, all the all the hysteria around um, Mabo and um, Wick and that. And, uh, and 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 I, I just thought it was a bit funny. But again, <clears throat> he he had these stone axes there that are significant to us, right? But they, he, he, and they were, you know, objects of curiosity to him. I'm talking about the old fella. They were objects of curiosity to him because they come from a lesser culture or from a long time ago, you know? But it was just that hysteria around native title and the Mama decision that kind of, um, they had a, another kind of significance attached to them. But he still kept them in his house. Those are just the ones he had in his house. He probably, he might have found, you know, hundreds of them on his land, just dug, digging them up. You know, there might have been a grinding site there, maybe a quarry or something, you know. And, um, but, but, I, but ever since then, I've just thought, how many farms are like that? How many? You know, 
going back and, and how many, how many um, properties have not just grinding stones but any number of tools that they've found there. Yeah, yeah. And, but, but again, it, it's, it's that whole thing of, um, for him, that old fella, they came from a culture that was less than him so it wasn't worth giving any more thought to than that, and um, and uh, and they were um, from a long time ago. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, thank you, thank you guys. Thanks. Any closing statements from from you, Rachel? In the flyer, um, the three, there's three campaign links that you can look at. There are active divestment projects. Seed is doing them right now. Um, there's lots of, um, yeah, ingenuity in their campaigning and they're constantly um, changing tactics. And if you should sign up to all three of them um, to follow them and fundraise with them. And um, yeah, that's the main thing. Cool. Um, so I'd like to thank our speakers um, for um, their words tonight and thank you all for coming. Um, if we can give them a round of applause.